Well, I want to say good morning to everybody. It is great to welcome you to Stonesville Community Church. And uh, someone said, I'm so glad that we live in a world with Octobers. And I am too. Um, we've, we've really enjoyed it. And uh, it seems like we're, we have peaked here in our area and neck of the woods for the uh, last few days, especially. So very, very grateful and thankful. And I hope that you're doing well. And stay encouraged, even in the uptick of things. Stay encouraged because... Um, there, believe it or not, there's good news. There really is. And the good news is that, and that's what we specialize in here, is um, the good news of Christ and who he is and what he's done. And the ultimate rescue of humanity has taken place in and through Jesus. And um, we can personally receive and appropriate his truth in our life. And um, as a result of that, no matter what comes our way, whatever the issues may be, um, there's strength that we can drive from our walk with God, and, um, and there's a lot of joy that can come from that. And it's especially important that we talk about joy because we're, we've been dealing with a, a series we're calling Letters from Prison, and probably this week and perhaps next week I'll wrap up the book of Philippians. And um, this is a book that Paul wrote while he was in prison, and it, ironically enough, one of the most joyful letters in all the Bible. And so we've been dealing with that, but there's not only one, there's like three more, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so we'll be looking at some of those other letters that he's written um, from prison. You know, um, if we could just go, I think about verse two or three, I think it's verse three of Philippians chapter two, verses one through 11 is our, passage today and there's a phrase in there that's kind of just been hounding me all week do nothing verse three do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit and my first thought is is there anybody else who wants to do this message (laughs) that's a powerful phrase do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. The OKJV, it's a King James Version Bible translation, uses the word vainglory. Okay? And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. I think one of the interpretational hinge points of this whole message and this whole passage ties in right there. And so, uh, as we think about this, not looking to our own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. Have you ever been annoyed by somebody? Any, anything annoying happening during this election season for anybody? Some of you probably have been annoyed more than once, right? It's like, Pastor, I'm annoyed dozens of times a day, man. What are you talking about? Yeah, we get annoyed at people. We get annoyed what we see, what they say, what they believe, how they how they demonstrate what they believe, right? We get annoyed. That's a reality of life. And so what happens is Paul, who has been deeply encouraged by what the Philippians have done for him, and you've been tracking with me, you know why he would say the things that he says in this book. Very, very powerful how the Philippians have been a ministry to him. And he has been made aware of a situation in the Philippian congregation that there's some annoyances happening. And not only are these annoyances happening, but they are hardening into attitudes. And when you have your annoyances, and you're going to have a bunch of them, and, and it could be any number of things. When you have annoyances and you let them harden into attitudes, it, it develops a mindset in you. And before you know it, you are in a a habitual state of thinking and a mindset that can easily enslave and capture you and ensnare you and really impact every important area of life, okay? So I've got a confession to make. And that is that uh, my wife asked me to do something uh, not too long ago and I acted annoyed when she asked me. Anybody else do that? Have you ever acted annoyed when a spouse asks you to do something? Uh, yeah, okay, all right. And she called me on it, and I'm so glad she did because I needed to be called on it. I acted annoyed. 
and there was no reason for me to act annoyed, but I acted annoyed. And so I think what happens is that maybe we've got uh, someone's going to, you know, in, they're going to impinge on my time. Maybe I had something else I wanted to do. I didn't want to do it right now, whatever. There's lots of different reasons why we act annoyed. But I kind of got rejoicing over it because then I've been struggling with this passage all week. Not always struggling, just digging in. And then it's like, oh, that's it. That's it. Paul, he wasn't so much annoyed. He was, he was very intentional about these annoyances he was hearing about in the Philippian congregation. Somebody was acting annoyed at another one, and it was turning into a hardening of the attitude. Okay? And so I got curious. I'm, I'm curious. Like, so I Googled it. Why do people get annoyed? It's interesting. You should do it sometime. You know what I learned was that... Um, of course, sometimes it is a violation of boundaries, and, um, and so we, you know, there's sometimes we should be annoyed at certain things. Again, we protect our time. If someone's taking too much of our time, we'll get annoyed maybe when they ask something of us. And sometimes we may be feeling resentful or angry. But did you know I discovered some of the primary um, human traits that we find annoying, Okay. We find it annoying when someone is a gloom merchant and they always see the dark side of everything. They never can see a positive perspective. Okay? What's crazy is Paul is not that way. Paul is not a gloom merchant. Paul is somebody, yeah, he may write a lot about last day's events and things, but he is a positive, intentional leader and even though he was in a horrible circumstance, he found it within himself to be positive and joyful. And so, but what we find annoying is that someone is always a gloom merchant or they always see the dark side. Number two, we find annoying when, when people complain about everything. It doesn't matter how bright the sun is or how beautiful the leaves are or how good the caramel apples taste or whatever, they're going to find problems. They're going to complain about the problems. We find that annoying if always someone is complaining. Typically, humans find it annoying that somebody always has to be right. No one can learn from anybody else, right? Because I'm right. I've got it figured out and we're not going to entertain the opinions or viewpoints of other people. And so they always have to be right. People find that annoying. Um, they find it annoying when we interrupt others. We barge in with a fascinating fact about ourselves and with no regard about the other people maybe that's in the conversation or uh, part of the discussion. We find that annoying. We find it annoying when we are relentless in self-promotion and I didn't know this was a thing until recently but um, actually death by selfie is becoming more of a common occurrence and it's more than just one way it's literally the case there's people dying because of self-promotion okay another selfie served up and they're putting themselves in risky situations just to have a great picture to share and it's usually them in the picture and so uh, but we find it, don't you find it a little unnerving, a little annoying that every time you turn around, somebody maybe in your family, um, not in your church, no, we don't have that here, right? But in your family, all right, in your family, always posting a picture of themselves, always. Do you find that a little annoying? Okay. What about uh, a scattered attention span? You're not as important as my newest notification. We find that annoying. Humans find it annoying when we're unreliable and we never follow through. That annoys people. It annoys people when we're always running late. Uh, it annoys people, I could go on, when we have no genuine interest in others. What does he say? What does he say? All right, looking to your own interest. Not that, but each of you to the interest of other people. Okay? Paul's, Paul understands this idea of annoyance. He understands it. He understands the Philippians understand it. And he's addressing it. And basically, 
What he does, I'll share the 10th point with you, the 10th thing that we really find annoying in just a second. But uh, what Paul does, if I could give you the succinct, scaled down, uh, synthesized explanation of this whole message, here's what he does. Here's what I see it. Okay? He's got annoyed people in the Philippian congregation. He understands that. These have hardened into attitudes. And therefore, Paul wants to motivate them to start living for other people and just not themselves. Because great, good people do, do great things for themselves. Great people do great things for others. Okay? Paul sees it. He understands it. And so what he does, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to do nothing out of selfish ambition. And we're seeing a lot of selfish ambition and promotion. Or vainglory or conceit or, or vain conceit. I want you to, in humility, value other people above yourselves not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of others then go to the next slide and then he says in your relationships with one another that's the key phrase have the same mindset as Christ Jesus and then he just goes he transitions this whole passage the next six verses or so he transitions into this theological treatise and he just lays out what Jesus did and he explains the incarnation from Jesus' perspective. How far, how much he has to demote himself, he says. And so what he does is Paul holds before a divided Philippian congregation that are filled with annoyances and aggravations that have hardened into attitudes. And then what he does is he holds up before the people and an incarnational example of Jesus and he says, listen, be like that. Be like him. That's how you make it through COVID. That's how you make it through these uh, untimely incarceration events in our life. This is how we survive is that we reach deeper and we see further and we understand there's something bigger we live for than just the little minor annoyance, right? And so he holds before the people this incredible, incredible example of Jesus who says, and, and the way he says this, and I've kind of noted it in the indentation, um, this is a quotation of early beliefs of Jesus that had, went, that had gone creedal and so now it is an established fact in their minds when they come together, they would sing and chant these words in the early church. So if you want an idea of what the early church believed about Jesus, this is your passage. And so they would chant these words and meditate and study these words and discuss these words. Notice it was all about Christ, all of it. And so, and he writes these words, he quotes these words, he writes the book of Philippians, the letter to Philippians, approximately about 60, 60 A.D. If something is quoted like this at 60 A.D., it, has, it is 20 or so years, it has is, it is been creedalized. So these, these were things that were believed early. They started getting quoted and written early, and Paul now is quoting them right here in this letter in 60 AD. So very short period of time after the life of Jesus, the community came around these beliefs. And all the scholars celebrate how deep this goes and how powerful and comprehensive this is that Jesus Christ who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage he was fully God and somehow he takes all of that deity and like a pitcher he pours it into the container of humanity who, who, who being in the nature of God rather he made himself nothing okay by taking the very nature of a servant, Be being made in human likeness, 
In verse 8 we read, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. And he says, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Joey Nelson, how could you ever be annoyed when you've got that kind of an example? Amen. Why in the world did I act annoyed when I was asked to put away an envelope? Why do you act annoyed? Have we lost our focus? How can we be annoyed when we see that demonstrated? And Paul understands it. And he says, okay, I see your annoyances. I understand it. I know we all have got them. And believe it or not, I could be annoyed too. Right? Paul could be annoyed. I mean, he's under house arrest. And he's in chains. And he's under constant guard. You've been with me. You know this. Um, he has no freedom of movement. He's isolated from his friends. He's evidently misunderstood by the church of Rome because it's a Philippian congregation 800 miles away that has to send him stuff to meet his needs. And you've got Christians in Rome. I mean, after all, he wrote a letter to the, it's called the book of Romans. Where are they? Okay, so Paul can be annoyed. And uh, he had every reason to be annoyed. And yet he says, and go to verse 2 if you would for me. He says, would you guys, you Philippians do me a favor. Would you make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one in spirit and of one mind? He says, he's got all of these reasons why he could be annoyed and he focuses on one solitary primary reason and one solitary primary purpose and one primary solitary person and you we just read the verses that he focuses he spent his time focusing on the beauty of what Jesus did, had done for him how could he be annoyed at the Praetorian guards at his current circumstances in his in his situation this God man who is fully God who who somehow retains his deity and pours his deity into the container of humanity he does not lose his deity he in fact limits self limits his deity in such a way that he can demonstrate God to us and convey and build the bridge from God to us he somehow pulls it off and does what is most selfless. He turns his back on his glory, not his deity, on all of his glory. And he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to build the bridge. And he, when he came, he wasn't annoyed. He wasn't upset that he had to come. He was uh, humble. He was approachable. Um, he connected with us. And so when I read words like this, when Paul lays out this argument of how in the world could anybody ever live with a constant barrage of annoyances in their life that have turned into hardening of the attitudes, he says these words, will you make my joy complete? In other words, will you let my joy spill over Will you show me, would you show the people that you go to church with, the people you live with, the people you're married to, would you show and demonstrate that there's something bigger and greater and better to rally around and to live for and not just our annoyances? You know, um, could I ask a question? What would really make your joy complete? What would really make my joy complete would be fill in the blank. Now, if I ask you to do that, you're going to do what's kosher. You're going to tell everybody what you, what you think they want you to say. But see, I'm not going to ask you to do it out loud, but I'm going to ask you to do it with yourself. 
what would you fill the blank in with? What would really make my joy complete would be what would really make me incredibly happy in life is. And Paul says, you know what's going to make me happy? That the people in the Philippian congregation will set aside their annoyances, lift up Christ, and invite Christ into the really horrendous circumstances of life and to lift him up. That's what would bring me joy. You know, uh, <clears throat> what's really interesting is that he gives like this if-then statement. If you look at verse 1, you see therefore if, and then he gives like four big ifs, right? And then he goes down, finally he gets to the then part of the if-then statement. Okay, then make my joy complete. And so when we look at what he says, in a, and he says it in such a way that it's, it's not, he's not questioning the truthfulness of what, he's, of what he's referencing. In fact, we could really read it, since this is true or because this is true, then would you make my joy complete? And if we really think about these if-thens, this gigantic if-then statement that he makes, um, we, we would look at this and and, and we could reword what Paul is effectively saying with yes-no questions, you know. And so when we, when we see this if-then statement, everything on, on the front side of the main verb, which is make my joy complete, that's the only verb in all four verses. So it's like one gigantic long sentence that he writes. And everything in front of the verb has to do with why you want to make why you want to make better decisions when it comes to managing our annoyances and our attitudes everything that comes after the verb make my joy complete everything that comes after it is how we do that so why why would we want to challenge our annoyances besides the fact that it makes everybody around us miserable makes you miserable makes messes marriages up families up society up culture up teams up why would we want to challenge our annoyances and our right to be annoyed and to express that, maybe through body language or through words that we speak, you know? Why, why, why is that? And so Paul is going to deal with the why of this. And so, and if we, we look at it, like I said, with these yes-no questions in mind, we could look at the screen again and you would see is there encouragement in Christ I mean after all he's rescued us and cheats death out of the final word so we could say well yes there's encouragement in Christ I mean Epaphroditus showed up I'm in I'm incarcerated he shows up with a gift it's awesome God is at work yes there's encouragement is there consolation in his love well sure I know that there's that's true because he, he has consoled us. He has whispered kindly to us through the love of other people. Paul has experienced this. Well, sure, I know that's true. Is there fellowship in the Holy Spirit? I mean, after all, he's led the two of them together, Paul and the Philippians together for the gospel work, right? Even though they're different, they um, were led together and they were partnering. So, yes, I'm sure that's true. And then he says, is there any affection or compassion from God I mean, after all, God gave us the very best to redeem us. So he knows that that absolutely is true. And so Paul basically, in this if-then statement, he's saying if all of these things are true, that there's encouragement in Christ, there's consolation in his love, there's fellowship in the Spirit, there is... There is uh, uh, affection and compassion if this is true and this is true and this is true then bring my joy to completion and why are we living this way if these things are true so do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit so this week that attracted the attention of the word study time that I have to give to this. And so it's kind of interesting to look at this idea of vain conceit. What is that precisely? It comes from a word that means that people are empty. We are starving for glory, you see. 
Do nothing out of glory hunger. And, and the word glory in the Bible means something that's important, something that's weighty, something that's significant, something that, is, that matters. And so this is telling us fundamentally that the deepest response of our soul is that we sense that we don't matter. It means that we're not assured of our significance and value. It means that we're not sure if we're validated or approved. It means that maybe we're afraid our lives don't count. That it means that maybe we're starving for respect and honor. And it means that we're insecure. You know, uh, I think sometimes we think, and it's, and it's awful to be hated or opposed it's awful to be called bad or vilified, right? Especially when that happen, happens before a watching world. But I think probably what is at the core issue of our fundamental fears is that we fear more than any of those things not mattering. That my life is inconsequential. And so we fear being ignored and 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 it's not it, it, to act as if no one cares if someone treats us small if someone maybe uh acts annoyed for whatever reason maybe they snub us and sometimes in those situations we can go ballistic we can we can focus on ourselves and we can focus on this thing that Paul is writing about here and 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 we think about I want my life to be weighty I want my life to be significant and so maybe maybe I'll make this much money or I'll win every contest or I'll I'll be at the top of my field or I'll be the very best at everything or and people will know me and I'll never be mediocre and so we get self-centered and when people annoy us and they annoy us by asking us maybe to do things or they they horn in maybe on what our plan is and what our what our uh, convenient you know our life of convenience the way we got have it thought out and planned out and it doesn't happen that way they annoy us with a request out of the blue we begin to feel like maybe that, hey, wait a second. Maybe my life doesn't matter, right? After all. See, you've always, Paul's dealing with people who are dealing just like we are with this glory hunger. And so we fear that our lives don't matter. And when you live your life that way, I've got to prove that I'm significant that I'm important, that I'm special, Paul says he would tell you you become self-centered and self-focused. And then when you start living your life in a self-centered fashion, we live for ourselves, and we want a full life, and yet the more full we are of ourselves, the more empty we feel. Paul says, it's never going to fulfill you. It's never going to satisfy you. It's going to ruin your relationships. That's why he says what he says in verse 5. He says we are, he acknowledges that we are glory starved. And we've turned away from God. That's the bottom line. Because we've turned away from God. There's this infinite size vacuum in us that was meant to be filled with the smile of the infinite God. And we don't have that. And we don't have that identity. We're going to be filled with this drive to have glory, to have acknowledgement, to have weight. You know, um, Madonna in an interview in Vogue magazine sometime uh, several years ago, she says, I have an iron will and all my will has always been to conquer a horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push by one spell of it, and I discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting, and I find I have to get past that again and again, and my drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. Because when I feel like I'm somebody, I still find after a while I have to prove I'm somebody, and my struggle will probably never end. 
Paul acknowledges that. He sees that. Well, what is it like, Pastor, if we live, if we crave the glory and we, we live for selfish ambition and we ignore the incarnational example of Jesus, this downward mobility that Jesus demonstrates where we, his life, yes, his life is important and it matters and it matters in such a way that it, it, he's able to serve and he's able to, to impact the people around him with, with a, uh, a kind of uh, a life of love, which is what Paul is pleading for. What, what militates against this life of love? What does it mean to be selfishly ambitious? Well, it's not really hard to figure out. We have an inability to admit wrongdoing or fault in our life. Maybe we get extremely angry and defensive if we're criticized. Maybe we don't want to forgive very easily. Maybe there's petty jealousies in our life that we just keep bringing back up. That's what was happening. And Paul sees it. Humility of mind is an attitude and it's not so much how we dress or what we drive or where we live. And I'm fascinated by the fact that Paul never says, I want you to look humble. He doesn't say, I want you to look humble. He says, I want you to look at Christ. And I want you to imitate his life and look at how he lived. And let that challenge your annoyances. Uh, humility is not some kind of fake piety or self-degrading attitude or self-pity. It's not a sad or long face. Paul could have easily lived his life that way, but because he had the focus of Jesus as his primary motivation for what he was going to do and how he was going to live, he was able to write this letter on joy. And he gives this incredible rendition of the incarnation of Jesus as an example for us to follow in that. Are you following Jesus in this way? Are you being and living out the good news in this way? You know, um, when Paul holds up this model of Jesus, obviously there were status seekers and glory seekers in the congregation at Philippi. And so when he holds this up, he shows us how Jesus emptied himself and he sets aside self and he, he comes to us and, and if each of us would set aside self in the same way, then unity would prevail. And as long as we have an attitude, Paul would assert, you're not treating me and my family and my race and my gender the way we ought to be treated. When we approach it that way, Paul says, wow, it's going to fracture and splinter your relationships. So Paul places before this group of people this incredible truth of Jesus, this incredible Christological hymn, hoping that they would forgive each other and move past their differences and unite in a common effort to see people receive the forgiveness of Jesus to be all he created them to be. He holds, he holds this Jesus up. Look at what Christ has done for you. Now go do this for others. Is your church divided? Is your family divided? Is your home divided? Is your team divided? Jesus, what did he do? How did he live? What's he asking of us? So someone who wants the mind of Christ is Jana Reese. If you could go to my final slide. Jana Reese, you know, she understands, hey, uh, there's obviously some selfish ambition in my life, right? There's obviously uh, some opinions and some annoyances that I'm hanging on to and I'm going to make issues with. Uh, she's not satisfied with her walk with Jesus. She wanted uh, to somehow break out of this, this uh, uh, mold, this, this pattern that she was in of just living her life as everybody else was living it. And so she decided she would do an experiment. And so for 12 months, 
she picks out a spiritual practice and she determines to live out that spiritual practice and also to read one of the spiritual uh, one of the spiritual classics books written by people who have gone deep into the spiritual life and so for 12 months she was going to read a a book and she was going to meditate more on the bible and she was going to live out a specific practice and so she determines to do this and so in january she says she set aside to choose the practices one month she said she was going to fast Another month, she wasn't going to spend money. One month, she'd observe an Orthodox Sabbath. She said all the spiritual giants had periods of celibacy. And when she mentioned that, her husband's head snapped up. And he was like, wait a second, I'm not sure I'm going to sign up for this. And so, obviously, she didn't end up doing that, but she certainly got his attention. February came, and she said, I started fasting. And I fasted till sunset each day. Again, she's challenging the, the self-centered approach to life. She's trying to develop the mind of Christ. How can I live and think and have attitudes that reflect the life of Jesus? And so she, so she says in the month of February, I fasted all day. And when, when the uh, fasting all day was over, she said, I hammered the girl's Girl Scout cookies at the end of the day. I mean, she said, I learned a lot in that. I thought maybe that fasting would supersize my prayers and that somehow they would jump the wake queue and be shouted into the ears of God. And then she saw it. Why are my needs more important than somebody else's? She saw it. The body and life is not all there is. There's something, there's greater realities. In March, she said, I dedicated myself to doing menial tasks with no complaining. She talks about Brother Lawrence, and maybe some of you have heard this guy who wrote a spiritual classic. He experienced the presence of God while doing kitchen duty for 15 years in a French monastery. And everybody else got to do saint stuff but him. Everybody else got to chant the Christological hymns and they got to do the prayers and they got to do the retreats and the silence and all the wonderful things that you typically think of of doing maybe in a monastery. And they all got to do it except for Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was stuck in the kitchen doing dishes and fixing food and cleaning up tables. And he writes in his book how he experienced the presence of Jesus by doing and serving in such menial tasks. She said, it dawned on me when I, when I, in the month of March, dedicated myself to doing menial tasks in the attitude of Jesus. And she said, what, I, what amazes me is how nice of kitchens we have and we don't cook in them. They look great, but we never, we never prepare food. Laundry and vacuuming and bills and chores and, 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 and all the different things. You know, it's like God in an apron, Jesus in an apron. He's serving and, he, and he's creating order in the chaos. And, and maybe the mind of Christ, maybe the mind of Christ, the beauty of Christ is preparing a meal for your family in the nice kitchen God gave you. It might be an annoyance sometimes but it's a ministry Jenna Reese learned that so, so she learns the value of food in February and, and the importance of just seeing herself and, and, and trying to, to understand this, the whole idea of, of, uh, of uh, how fasting usually accompanying mourning in the Bible and how now when she feels a hunger pain, she says, I always pray when I feel that hunger pain. And I reflect on that month of fasting in February. March, she, she writes about the menial task. In April, she does what the spiritual writers called Lexio Divina. It's just all it is is prayerful reading. 
She said, I normally inhale a book. I ram through that sucker and I get to another one and I just ram through that one. She said, instead of doing that with my reading in the month of April, I just slowed myself down and I meditated on what I read and I prayed what I read and then I tried to live what I read. She said, I did this with the Gospel of Mark and she said, I I noticed something in that time of meditative reading and praying through the gospel of mark she said hardly a page went by but what someone was misunderstanding jesus in one of the pages and sometimes the mind of christ is walking through those seasons of misunderstanding by the way, she will tell you the name of the book. It's Flunking Sainthood. She says, I flunked every one of these practices. Every one of them. I cheated on the fast month. I, 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 I didn't always have a good attitude in the menial task month. I, I, I messed up even in the, in the prayerful reading month. In May, she says, I, I eliminated what I called, what she calls shoppertainment. Only going into the grocery store to spend money and not going other places. And so she, she became hyper aware of all the ways that she went about seeking status and approval from other people. Dressers and rugs and paintings and drapes. All these things that she had in mind for her home. And how she, she loved the status that some of these decorations would bring to her. And she would rush off to her next purpose, her next purchase. So she saw that. June, she said, I said the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's just a short, simple prayer. She inhaled the first part. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. She exhaled the second part. She placed herself in the presence of Christ just to be with him, focusing on his lordship, focusing on his deity, just like Philippians 2, 5 through 11, focusing on our need for forgiveness, focusing on our propensity to sin. And now she says every time, every time uh, she started to judge someone in that month and even following, she said, I just said this prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, I think of a presidential candidate. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, I think of that person in Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, I think of my spouse who, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I've been trying that. I've been kind of exhaling, inhaling that and exhaling that. That's what Paul's after. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. She said, I just started praying that every time I wanted to judge somebody. Every time that political candidate said those annoying things. Every time I thought of something annoying and wanted to judge and say something about it. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. July came. She said it was Orthodox Jewish Sabbath month. She had no idea how hard that would be. No driving, no cooking on, sun, on Sabbath. No use of electricity. There's no work. There's no gadgets. Uh, she even had to pre-tear the toilet paper because that's against tearing the toilet paper is a violation of the Sabbath. I know, long story. Okay, probably not going to get any Orthodox Jewish converts here today. But uh, she said, I had to even pre-tear that. She said, it was crazy. It was just nuts. But she said, at the end of it, she said, I felt like I had created this little palace of peace. And I had dethroned the idol of work. And I discovered a little more of the mind of Jesus. August was expressing gratitude every day. She, she wrote a note or made a call to at least one person a day to express her gratitude. She banished all the negative thoughts. She said, 
and she really likes Chesterton, who, who says, you know, he makes this point, you say grace or you give thanks before meals, and that's great, but Chesterton says, that's okay, but I want you to know and I want the world to know that I say grace before the concert, I say grace before the opera, I say grace before the play, before the race, grace before I open the book, grace before sketching, grace before painting, grace before swimming, grace before walking and dancing, and the grace to dip the pen in the ink. Sometimes this living life, when, you're, when you live life with an awareness of, of how great he is, how little we are, it evokes gratitude in our hearts and in our lives. And she saw it. And that became her focus in August. In September was hospitality. Every stranger would be welcomed as Christ. Everyone. Making sure that guests feel welcome. And, I, it, in, and that was September. In October, she made better food choices. And she writes about that. And in November, there was three times a day she would stop to praise God and toy with the idea of praying the hours through the day. And so every time there was a new hour, she would just stop and pause and pray as long, along with the other seasons of prayer. In December was generosity. You know, it's easy to love people from far away, but she said, the people who know I know better, the people who annoy me, who aggravate me, sometimes they need companionship and love. She said, I failed at all of these practices. But six weeks after I turned in the manuscript for the book, I got a call. And my father that I hadn't seen for 26 years was dying in Mobile, Alabama. And they wanted to know if she could come and say goodbye. This was the dad, she said that left the family high and dry years ago, emptied out the bank accounts, emptied out the college accounts, emptied of the kids, took all of the resources that he could get his hands on and and walked out and left the family 26 years ago. And now they want to know if I want to come and say goodbye to a man I haven't seen for 26 years. She said, it's got to be a test. And her thought... Her thought that it must be some kind of a trial or or some kind of a culminating event from all this year of intense searching for the mind of Christ and endeavoring to live the mind of Christ. This intensive year of doing nothing for selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value other people above yourselves. Does that include her father? Not looking on your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. She said, I showed up, and he was 71, a a mere 117 pounds with a breathing tube. She learned that he had squandered his health, trying to be great. The struggle, this glory, this desire for glory, this desire for significance... It had led him down many paths. He had developed a smoking habit. He had ended up wasting his life on gambling and porn. And this is what she writes. There was no evidence anywhere of friendship or any kind of personal relationship in his life. He never invested in a single person. He lived the self-centered life. And she says, here's what I learned from my father's reappearance and death. All those unsuccessful practices for that 12-month period of time, those attempts at sainthood that that felt like dismal failures at at the time actually took hold somehow and that they helped to form inside me the kind of person who could go to the bedside of someone who had harmed me and be able to say, I forgive you, go in peace. She said, I didn't suspect it, but the greatest spiritual practice of all, the most life-changing spiritual 
discipline in which she engaged was the discipline of failure. You see, when we look at this passage and we look at her story and we look at our lives, we have decisions to make. And deep inside, you know, we're all afraid, we're marginal, and maybe we're insignificant, and nobody can interrupt me on my significant path, right, of get, getting things done, and, no, and I have a right to be annoyed, and we're all afraid that we're unimportant, and, 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 we, and the gospel asserts that when we, when we actually realize that, yes, you know what, I am unimportant. Yes, outside of Christ, I am just a wave on the sand and I don't last. To be a Christ follower means that, yes, we, we maybe dredge up all of these feelings and we look at God and we say in light of the gospel, you know, God, it's true. I have no glory. I have nothing to offer. I have no righteousness. I deserve to be cast off. As soon as you say that, as soon as you say, I am marginal, God says, come on in. As soon as you understand, I am weightless. I have no glory. I have nothing to re reflect in my life of an in and of myself. God says, okay, now you count. It's only when you say and you acknowledge and you understand, I have no righteousness of my own. God will clothe us in his righteousness. And Christ is Paul's living argument who says, who cares what people think? I love you. Why are you trying to complete yourself by sucking glory out of situations in your life? It's Christ that comes into our life and he addresses these feelings of smallness and he says, hey, Look at what I've done for you. You can be different. You can live from a different source of strength and power. And so the question today is, do you feel small? Are you the kind of person who is maybe, you seem like more recently at least, maybe your, your feelings are getting hurt more than they ordinarily would? Or are you the kind of person who maybe continually feels snubbed, or are you the kind of person who needs to control the people you're with to get them to do and act just the way you want them to? Christ became smaller. The text demonstrates it. He's such a big, glory-filled being in God, and he becomes smaller and smaller and smaller so you could have a bigger and bigger and bigger life. And so we can stop being upset by the little snubs of people. We can stop worrying about whether people have criticized us or not. We can be willing to overlook slights. We can be willing or slights. We can be willing to, to be the first to put out a hand and say, hey, let's get together. Let's get past this. And you can only do it if you have the mind of Christ. You know, what I find intriguing, if we go to the very last verse or a couple of verses of this passage this ancient hymn that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father it's like there's an invitation that's being given. He's saying, come and join us in the singing. Believe in his exaltation. Believe the title that he has claimed for himself and that God himself has highly exalted him. And, and we can come and be a part of this great invitation where we settle out of court. We, we don't wait until the time when we are forced to bow and to acknowledge his greatness. No, no, we settle out of court. We see who he is and what he is, what, that he has redeemed us forever, and we can sing before him, him who is, who is seated on his throne, and we are invited to make him Lord of our life and Lord of our, of our offenses, Lord of our annoyances, Lord 
of our mindsets and our attitudes. You know, I have had more trouble with one person in my life than I've had with anybody else combined, everybody else combined. And his name is Joey. Don't tell anybody. Life is one big obstacle course with me as the primary obstacle. Learning to keep self in check. The more full of myself, the more empty I feel. But when I forget myself, God does his thing. We can forget ourselves into greatness. We can forget our rights and remember our responsibilities. We can forget our inconveniences and remember our blessings. We can forget our accomplishments and remember all the people that we owe so much, so much to. Do you have the mind of Christ? Maybe you'll listen to someone tell a story. Maybe you'll forgive someone. Maybe you'll tell someone you believe in them. Maybe you'll teach someone without sounding superior. Maybe you'll, you'll give full attention to someone. Maybe you'll accompany someone in a big event in their life. Maybe you will assume the best when you're still a little suspicious. Paul says, this is the mind of Christ. This will free you. This will free you to make a difference. It'll free you to live for a bigger reason. Good people do great things for them, good things for themselves. Great people do great things for others. What would he have you to do? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this day and thank you for this group and we rejoice in your love and we thank you for a passage like this. And right now, we all need the incarnational example of Jesus in front of us more than any other person. And we see who you are and we see the attempts of people who are wanting to know the mind of Christ. And we understand that. We have our own attempts that we've made. And today, I just would ask and pray you'd help each of us to get out of our way and of spiritual growth, of, of maturity, uh, to, to see what we need to see here today. And perhaps all of our failures is the spiritual practice that you will use to bring us closer to you. All we know, we know you use these other things that Jana Reese talks about. We, we know that there's lots of different ways that we can go about checking the self and living for something more than just us. We know that. But we're reminded this morning that maybe the primary thing you use is our failure. And perhaps I talk to one who's had an experience marital failure. Perhaps I talk to others who are experiencing uh, family conflict and divisiveness. Uh, maybe we talk to some today who are looking at unresolved and uncertain future. Not sure what the health diagnosis is going to be. Not sure what the legal outcome is going to be. What, not sure what the financial statement is going to read or the vocation or the, the leaders of a job are going to make, the decisions they're going to make. But I ask and pray today that you would take all of us into this incredible relationship and you would help us to understand that in you we are significant through Christ and he's our everything. And so will you be with us today? Would you help us not to be a people who are leading with our annoyances, our grievances, but will you help us to live out the gospel in such a way that we contribute to the peace and the joy that you have for us and our families and our world for each other? We ask that you would do this in your strong name we pray. And then, Father, we are in prayer that you would be with our nation and be with the, the future of our, our nation. We understand lots of decisions are being made. We understand there's lots of issues to consider. And we ask and pray, Heavenly Father, that you would touch each of our hearts and give clarity and wisdom to us. Help us to engage the process. Help us to engage this culture to be salt and light as you've asked us to, not to abandon it, 
uh, not to avoid it, not to isolate from it, but to be engaged in it and endeavor to represent you, your perspective, your lifestyle, the example of Jesus. I ask and pray you would guide us in this and you would lead us in this effort. And so we trust you, Heavenly Father, this day that we will lift you up in your name. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for being here today. And will you stand with me? Letters from prison. So next week is a big Sunday. It's a big Sunday preceding the election. And so I'm going to deal with the final passage in uh, Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 9, uh, 10, and 11. And then also we'll be giving some of you an opportunity then to offer prayer for what's in front of us. And so we'll have a little time set aside next week for that to wrap up this time. Thank you. God bless you. Have a great day. Appreciate you being here today. You're loved.